I'm Brad Baluchian, and you're listening to GrottoPod. Writer and poet Reina Leon continues our summer GrottoPod reading series with her essay, Solstice in Solidified Sugar, which was recently republished in the Acentos Review. Reina J. Leon is a black, Afro-Boricua, native Philadelphian, mother, daughter, sister, madrina, comadre, partner, poet, writer, and teacher educator. She believes in collective action and community work, the profound power of holding space for the telling of our stories, and the liberatory practice of humanizing education. She seeks out communities of care and craft and is a member of the Carolina African American Writers Collective, Cave Canem, Canto Mundo, and Macondo. She is the author of three collections of poetry, Canticle of Idols, Boogeyman Dawn, and Sombra Dislocate, and the chapbooks Profeta Without Refuge and Areto to Atabe, Essays on the Mother Effing Self. She is a full professor of education at St. Mary's College of California, only the third black person, all black women, and the first Afro-Latina to achieve that rank there. Now, here's Reina. Hello, my name is Reina Leon, and I will be reading for the San Francisco Writers Grotto some excerpts from the essay Solstice and Solidified Sugar, which was first published in my chapbook Areto Te Atare, Essays on the Mothering Self, that came out through uh, Alley Cat Books and was most recently republished in the um, Afro-Latinx issue of the Ascentus Review. Solstice in Solidified Sugar. After uh, Andrea Trung, Proverbs 12.22, which has this epigraph, Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. There is a girl who weeps in this story. There's a girl who watches Shirley Temple dance while she sits on her father's lap and laughs. She has two girls overlapping in time, La Negra or La India, depending on the voice, y La Blanca. One girl laughs in joy and innocent memory. The other laughs, too, and doesn't know fear and shame come next. She grows into a woman no one believes. What do we believe? What hides in the image reflected from the glass behind a white girl dancing with bojangles in black and white? In front, a girl and her father. There is a girl who is a woman and still a girl, her ass in her titi's hands while women in another room prepare to pray a novena for the girl's grandmother, the only mother titi has ever known and called Doña or Mami hanging in the same air. There is a girl who feels like she is a boy, should be able to walk free like a boy, should be seen in her freedom as a boy, if only the world knew beyond her body, because the world, which is her family, says only a boy, especially the light-skinned boy, can be free. She wants to be free, because she knows she already is. There is a black girl who will try to kill a black boy because he is light-skinned and boy, and the vessel for colorism and racism and white supremacy and patriarchy, but she doesn't have the names for that. She will try to kill her sweet little brother who reminds her 
in her womanhood of her own son's shy tenderness many times, how she could have squelched it, and in that realization she despairs a past in which she does not know why she rages, cries out, grows her nails long to scratch out anyone who gets too close. I am the girl who knew joy and knives. I am not the weeping girl with testimonies. What does Dithi have to teach me? Her body is the sacrifice, the lessons to fight for a black feminist liberation written in what she could not live herself. The rules different, and so she lived within them, black and ever not. There's a picture of her wedding, still a girl herself in a puffy white princess dress. My grandmother with a cropped red hair stands at her red right hand. My grandfather, smooth and brown, his hair slicked back in a black wave at her left. They do not smile, but their eyes do. They give away their daughter to a Boricua with a French last name. Before my husband and I board a plane to go to our co-ed baby shower, I tell him that much of my family will come, including Titi. I tell him that she is bound to say some locura. His job is to be the wall and keep me away from it. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. She's always been nice to me. You are white. The pronouncement is simple to say. What I don't say is that this is how I know I am supposed to feel. I have become successful to her gaze. I am educated. I married a white man, a European no less, and I am pregnant with a boy. On the plane, I wish I could have a shot of rum. I long for it. My son kicks within me anytime he hears music enter his pulsing water world. He reminds me he is there. At the shower, she talks about feminism in the new world, how proud she is of me for my education and that I travel, how in her day, they never would have had a co-ed shower. I think for a moment, how this is how, what I've always wanted, finally, to be seen. In the second, I think she must be on drugs. In the third, that maybe her daughter or granddaughter has had the honest conversation with her in ways I never could. Feminist, anything so new in the mouth, I have studied my whole life. She tells me that the women of our family have never had trouble giving birth. This news is what I've also craved. Don't all prospective mothers to know that their labors will be smooth. And so I feel seen in this way. I breathe easy. I welcome that my husband does not need to be a wall. Perhaps my whole seeing of her has been wrong. My whole life wrong. The rum craving ends. As we line up for arroz con gandules, a yasopao de pollo, ensalada, and perfectly sliced aguacate, I hear her say to her daughter, aren't you going to serve your husband? This is what my mother was told to do when my parents first partnered, nearly 50 years before. The women waited on the men and ate when they were done. We scrapped. My mother only did that once. The first time she met my grandmother out of love for the woman who birthed her man, who loved him first. After that, my grandmother served him because my mother wouldn't. It's nearly 50 years later, Titi's daughter herself has been married nearly 25 years. She responds, he can serve himself. A simple pronouncement I overhear. I see my cousin in a feminist resistance. My own chafing has been at a distance. 
for my cousin, her resistance in career and partnering and travel herself as was at the front lines of familial grading. I watched my cousin still tend to her mother, still fold her body close to her. I try to color deeply in roses each time I see her that day. Sure, in my vision, those roses wilt at the edges. They are still rose, rose and amber. At the shower, another deeply, this one, Gladys, makes me café con leche. The color of the inside of my wrist sweetened nearly to caramel. Perfection on my tongue, on love, magnificent, intimate, warm, a bounty. Thiefy Gladys is not Thiefy. She and Theo are my brother's godparents. When we were children, they would come to pick him up, leaving me behind. He went to watch the fights on TV or out to dinner. He went many places with them that I don't know. They were involved, showing him generosity and care. I remember once they bought him these white Hess trucks scripted over in green. Dio said, if you don't open them, someday they'll be worth something. To my brother, a child. To be worth something, one should not play. My brother played. He was still worth something. I was bitter and poisoned as uncooked yatia. I remember only these gifts from Thiefi, a keychain from Puerto Rico, an island to which I belonged, but to, to which I had never been, a t-shirt, also from Puerto Rico, and a white cabbage patch doll and a white tennis shirt, tennis skirt, though I am not white and have never played tennis. All of these were worth something, wrapped up in an identity true and desired. Still, I was always left behind to be included would have meant more. You need to start wearing makeup, she said. A little lipstick and blush, but not like a puta, she tells me. After she picks my brother and me up from school and walks us home, she always stays for an hour or so while she watches her soap operas. I am around 11 years old. I do not know what a puta is. I just know I'm not supposed to be one. Between her visitation and my mother's arrival home, we have a few hours alone. We are told not to answer the phone or the door. That's when I nearly kill my brother. He is a boy never told to make himself up how not to be a puta. He is a boy never told who or what to be. Titi is not my only Titi. The first and only time I met my titiada in Puerto Rico, really my great aunt, after time spent in the living room to share stories, she walked us to a room the entire space, an altar to San Lazaro, Orisha of healing in Catholic robe. To say his real name is to invite judgment and destruction. Titiada told a story of how, when she was dying, she prayed to San Lazaro to heal her body, and in exchange she would honor him. He did. In the story I tell now, San Lazaro did heal her body, but he took his praise in her mind and dementia what she remembered as all her past swept away to astral it was to worship him. This she knew until she died. What I know is that she was beautiful and lovely and loved me even at first sight. I belonged in her heart and home, what we remember, who we forget. I never forget Titi. The name is a box of films I once lived. I asked Titi once to teach me Spanish when I am in elementary school. She teaches me La Mano, 
no veils. The hand and the fingers, these are the only ways. I wear makeup only for performance. I learned as an adult that Titi means penis in Tagalog from one of my Panay friends. This is strangely appropriate. I am Boricua of an old stereotype who dances and dances with fists and can dance until the knife makes you bleed. I learned these things very young. In the times between Titi and Mommy, I tried to kill my brother with a knife for no reason. A snap of a nail once. I can't remember the others. He was faster than me and strong, would always run and hold his door against my weight until I slid the knife below. For years, he slept on his back, his arms climbed above him as if in a push-up, every, ever ready to rush to push at the door. I did that. He was a sweet little boy. Now a loyal and brilliant man, he represented what I did not have the language to fight. I had time and fists and access to kitchen knives. When I told my mother the story in college, my brother laughed in confirmation. She said, Reina, I would have gotten you help. What help could she have given me? The root of my desire to kill not about my brother, but about colorism and internalized racism made manifest in family interactions and patriarchy and its demands in the mouths and actions of those I loved most. I am an academic. I can theorize it now. My brother and I forged in steel. We are very close. We often laugh inappropriately about death, violence, and survival. There was a story where my, my father breaks out two axes from his locker when he was a security guard on a college campus. And there was that one about a stabbing at a party. And the one, don't worry, I don't have a knife collection anymore. I had theories. At Thanksgiving one year at my grandmother's table, mommy with her family and my papi brother and I with the Boricua side, Titi gives me advice. I had just talked about applying to graduate school, how I was thinking of schools in New York. You need to go to Miami, she says. Marry a nice Cuban. There's too much black in the family. All these Leon mar men marry black women. My mother is black. I am black. In Cuba, they had one of the biggest forced migrations of enslaved Africans, so they're certainly black. And in Puerto Rico, I know from doing genealogical research and tracing race, generations and generations of our ancestors are black, de color, negro. Yes, we blackity black black. And Taino and Spanish and walking survivors of colonization and oppression, resistance just in being. I remember putting down the knife and moving to a separate room. I have never challenged her always accepted a violence out of respect for an elder. I suffered disrespect. My brother and I shifted our eyes to Poppy. He ate his chicken, sucking, sucking the bone. We hadn't heard anything out of turn. When we told Mommy what Titi had said, there was a war against a silence against my father for days. At a Black student union meeting in college, my friends talk about colorism within the Black community. I talk of the great heaviness and added persecution I, I feel being dark-skinned. In the mirror of my friends' eyes, I see that to them I am not dark-skinned, that they do not understand how I can feel so ostracized and attacked within my own family. I'm the only Afro-Boricua in the room. 
I have become obsessed with genealogy. I discover and scan Puerto Rican church records of baptism, marriages, and deaths, who were the mothers and fathers and whom and who their parents were, find the right record, and I leap two generations back. My obsession leaks into the dawn hours. I thank the God of the Church of Latter-day Saints for missionaries, the imperialists of faith, whose drive for the names of all to be written in the Book of Mormon and so find heavenly bliss has led to a bounty of records no hurricane can erase. I trace names, places, race. We have always been black, indigenous, black. And that's our show for today. Grottopod is produced by Brad Baluchian, Rita Chang-Epig, George Higgins, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner. The music is by Sugartown. Grottopod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Brad Baluchian, and thanks for listening.